Welcome, and thank you for listening to the West Hills Podcast. West Hills Church is a balanced, engaged, authentic, disciple-making church that serves the St. Louis, Missouri area with Sunday services at 9 and 1045 a.m. For more information on our church, go to westhillsstl.org. Now, here's the sermon from Sunday. My summer, um, after my freshman year of high school, I got the opportunity to go on a one-month language immersion trip uh, to Costa Rica. And on my first night there, I made uh, quite an impression with my new host family in my nervousness <clears throat> of uh, acclimating to a new home and new city, new family, new foods, mostly new language for me still. I accidentally spilled my water all over the dinner table and so in my attempt to apologize, uh, I exclaimed, estoy tan embarazada, uh, which I thought meant I'm so embarrassed, but which you uh, Spanish speakers will know actually means I'm so pregnant. <coughs> Talk about embarrassment. Uh, well, that uh, faux pas earned me the affectionate nickname Gringo for the summer. Uh, foreigner, and some of us feel that way, though, as Christians in the increasingly secular world around us, don't we? We feel like foreigners, outsiders, like we don't belong. And as we uh, learned last week, that's because we don't. We don't quite belong. The Bible calls those of us who are believers, who are born again, followers of Jesus, and who are now adopted sons and daughters of our Father God in heaven, it calls us strangers and exiles. In this world that we now find ourselves, we're citizens of heaven instead, and yet God has also appointed us and left us here as ambassadors to this world from his own, to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth, reach everyone here with the good news of Jesus, his life, death, resurrection, for the forgiveness of sins, for all who would simply trust in him by faith and be saved. And so the question for us again this morning is, how do we do that? How do we as outsiders reach an increasingly foreign-feeling world with the hope and the love of Jesus? Well, fortunately, God has not left us in the dark. He has given us his word as a guide, and specifically this morning, uh, the example of the Apostle Paul, who in Acts chapter 17 on the Areopagus in Athens, Greece, we find doing exactly the same thing that you and I have been called to do. He's preaching to a thoroughly pagan culture with the hope and the love of Jesus. And so last week we started and saw in part one of our study of this passage that in many ways Paul's audience here is nearly identical to our own. Here's the context. Paul has got three groups of listeners. There's the Epicureans, the Stoics, and then the common Greek people. Hedonist, idealist, and polytheist. Pleasure seekers, virtue keepers, and God appeasers. But isn't that America today too? Most of our loved ones fall into one of those three categories. Some folks couldn't care less about God. They just want to suck all the marrow out of this life, all that this world has to offer while they're here. Others figure that if there is a God, you know what, it'll just all work out in the end as long as I try and be a good person, live virtuously. And then still others are deeply religious, but they know little to nothing of the true God of the Bible. 
And so we have much to learn this morning from both the content and the context here of Paul's message in Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. That's where we're going to be again this morning. If you want to begin turning there in your Bibles, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one of those at the info bar as well. But we've got 16 principles here. That, that Paul is going to teach us uh, for effective evangelism. We covered half of them, eight of them last week, you remember. And so let's start with a, a quick recap of those eight principles. First, we must be upset. Like Paul, we need to be provoked, deeply distressed, heartbroken over the sin and the resulting alienation from God that we see around us in the world. Number two, we must then be responsive. We need to recognize our audience who were uh, communicating with and respond by contextualizing our gospel message accordingly. Number three, we must be undeterred, we said. Like Paul, our evangelism may well be met with mockery, misunderstanding, or perhaps just passive, you know, fake curiosity or apathy. In any case, we don't let it deter us from our calling to witness to others. Number four, we therefore should be ready, ready to jump at the chance to share the gospel with people, to seize every possible opportunity. But at the same time, number five, we should also be realistic. We should, you, know, you know that not everyone will respond to the gospel with saving faith. And yet, like Paul, we preach nevertheless because we know our job is simply to sow the seed. God's job is to give the growth. Number six, we said we must be winsome so attractive and charming as to win others over. We Christians ought to be the kinds of people that unbelievers want to hang around and listen to and learn from and become like. Number seven, we must be inquisitive. We don't just preach, we listen as well. We observe. Number one, so we know how best to preach and reach people, but also because people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And so we prove it by taking an active interest in the lives and the perspectives of those around us, even when they disagree with us. And lastly, from last week, number eight, we must be cross-cultural. Because if we're going to take the gospel and translate it into terms that those around us can understand and relate to, we've got to engage with that culture. We can't just cower in fearful isolation. So wherever we find God's light and his common grace, even in our own pagan society, we commend it and then we capitalize on it by using that as a touch point, a launch pad for gospel conversation and connection. So with those eight principles in mind, let's add an additional uh, eight principles now to those for effective evangelism. I invite you to stand with me as you're able uh, for the reading of God's word. As I said, Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. We're going to read the whole passage again because it's so good and because it gives us the context and the rom reminder for um, where we're headed this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, for Silas and Timothy, at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be preacher, a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians 
and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What you therefore worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. That the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. No, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word, our guide, our lamp unto our feet, light unto our path that you show us how to live, how to do what you've put us here on earth to do, to glorify you. That, Father, you show us this morning one of the very best, most glorious ways we can do that and honor you is by sharing you with others. And so, Father, for those of us who are here this morning, maybe if we're honest, our, our love has grown cold, our We've lost our first love, our passion, our exuberance, compulsion to to share you with others. Would you stir our affections again this morning for you that we might, that it might overflow into love for others and desiring them to know your love as well as we leave this morning. And Father, for anyone here this morning who, who may be here, and for whom we, we don't have to go out to Jerusalem and Judea, the ends of the earth, but who may have been brought here this, this morning from even the ends of the earth, who doesn't yet know you. God, would you use this morning in your word, by the power of your spirit, would you open their heart, their mind, their eyes to, to see, to behold, and to experience the love of Jesus for them this morning. Would you show perhaps an unbeliever here this morning, the glory of who you are and what you've done for them in your son Jesus, we pray. In his name, amen.
You may be seated. <clears throat> so we'll pick up where we left off in verse 24 <clears throat> with principle number nine for effective evangelism. We must be intelligible. Our gospel presentation must be intelligible. Last week we heard the context behind the salutation to Paul's address here, but this morning we're going to be examining his sermon proper, and I want you to notice how he opens it. You know, he's been talking about Jesus and Anastasis, the resurrection, and they're, they're confused about that. So when he gets on the Areopagus talking publicly to the crowd here in verse 24, he opens with the God who made the world and everything in it. Now, Paul knew, of course, that Jesus, as we've already said, is the very center of the gospel. That Jesus' sacrificial death in the place of rebel sinners, his crucifixion is the crux, the centerpiece of the gospel proclamation. And yet, it need not necessarily be the beginning. Every gospel presentation must include the cross, but it must not necessarily open with the cross. Instead, Paul starts here with an even more basic ground-level, accessible, intelligible, doctrinal truth. Namely, he starts at the beginning, Genesis 1. 1-1, he, he doesn't quote it, because as we pointed out last week, the Old Testament wasn't considered scripture. It wasn't divinely inspired, authoritative words of God for his uh, Athenian audience here. And so they've already made that abundantly, abundantly clear. Verse 18, they, they have no idea who Jesus is and uh, who who what resurrection anastasis is and so instead paul starts here with god and creation these concepts that they can follow you know that they also have in their own pagan religions and philosophies you know because you don't want to preach over the heads of people you're trying to reach with the good news you don't want to leave them even more lost and confused than before and speaking of relatable if we actually back it up to verse 23 here Talking about building bridges and, and, and being relatable, you will recall that Paul's in here, his sermon introduction, if you will, was their own altar to an unknown God. The Greeks were renowned for their uh, polytheism, their, their great expansive pantheon of gods. You may be familiar with the 12 uh, most popular, the Olympian gods, Zeus, Poseidon, Athena, Aphrodite, but they worshipped hundreds, maybe thousands more than that. Their deities were so ubiquitous that one ancient historian, Peteronius, said that it was easier to find a god in Athens than a man. And yet, there were never enough. They just invented new gods for everything, you know. What's an eclipse? Oh, it must be a god of an eclipse, right? But there were never enough. In the 6th century BC, a great plague hit all of Greece, and so naturally people started making sacrifices to all of their gods. Start at the top with Zeus, work your way down. See who's mad at you. Who's mad? Who do you have to appease? But still, the plague persisted. And so, one of their philosophers, Epimenides, the same philosopher who Paul is going to quote here in verse 28, Epimenides, he came up with an idea. He reasoned that if none of the myriad of their existing gods seemed to be accepting their sacrifices and remedying the plague, then perhaps there were even more gods that the Greeks didn't even know about yet. And so Epimenides suggested, let's start building altars and sacrificing to the unknown god, just in case we miss one, one who we've offended and is mad. And so Paul takes that and he says, you 
Now, as a matter of fact, your ancestors were right. You did miss a God, the only God, the only God who matters, the only one who truly exists, Yahweh, maker of heaven and earth and everything in it, he is Lord of all and he alone deserves all of your worship and attention and devotion. And so Paul is going to get to Jesus, we'll get there, but he starts here with God the Father and with creation, with these concepts that they already have categories for in their own religion, even if their theology is way off. And that's a good segue to principle number 10. We must be honest. When people's theology is off, we need to be honest. Paul is winsome. He's uh, gracious and respectful of their culture and their worldview, but he's still honest with them. He gives it to them straight in verses 24, 25 here. He may be winsome, but Paul is not a wuss. I think sometimes that we, we think we're being winsome, but really, if we're honest, we're just wimping out. Sometimes we think, well, you know, if I'm going to charm people and win them over to Jesus, I don't want to offend them. Look, Paul is not afraid of ruffling some feathers here. He essentially says, the good news is uh, you were right about missing a God. The bad news is you're wrong about everything else, about who he is, about what he's like. You're, you're dead wrong. And, and Paul says, this God, the true God, is nothing like the fake gods that you've been worshiping all your lives and for centuries as a society going back. He's nothing like that. Look at verses 24, 25, 29 here. Paul makes a direct contrast between their conception of the gods and the true God of the Bible. Religion builds a way up. What must God be like? Revelation says, no, God speaks to us and says, this is what I'm like. And Paul says, y'all think in your religion that, that God, the gods live in the temples that they rely on your offerings and that they look like you. But actually, Revelation, how God has revealed himself is God can't be confined by your buildings for him. He doesn't need anything from you, actually. We're the ones who rely on him for everything, for life and breath and everything. And number three, we don't make him in our image. He's already made us in his image. That's way better. That's way better news. And in this way, as Tony Merida notes, Paul repudiates all three camps in his audience there the Epicurean Stoics and the Polytheist. In contrast to the Stoics, Paul states that God is distinct from his creation. He's not their pantheistic, impersonal, life force, Star Wars God. Everything is God. Paul says, no, everything is from God. Yahweh alone is God. He's distinct from creation. In contrast to the Epicureans, Paul states that God is not aloof. He's not distant and disinterested, the absent father God but rather he is intimately involved in his creation. Jesus said, God numbers the hairs on your head. He says, not a sparrow falls to the ground without God taking note and caring. He cares. And then finally, in contrast to the idol worshipers, Paul states that God cannot be contained in a shrine or a temple. As King Solomon himself confessed in 1 Kings 8.27 at the dedication of his own temple that he spilt, spent half his life building for God, this is what Solomon wrote, what he said to the Israelites. Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I've built. 
I mean, how is that for a temple dedication? You finish this massive building project, get all the, the people, the nation together, and in your speeches, well, everyone, I know you've worked tirelessly for seven long years now and spent a few hundred million dollars of your, of your hard-earned money building this home for God, but let's not forget, heaven is his throne. The earth can barely suffice as his footstool, so I'm not really sure, you know, what, what we're doing here with this temple thing. Solomon was honest with Israel. And Paul is honest here with the Athenians. And the question for you and me this morning is, will we be honest with those around us? Listen, if you are trying to witness to someone in your life, a lost loved one, perhaps, and you haven't yet mentioned sin, if you haven't yet mentioned their sin, because here's the thing, everyone kind of gets sin in the abstract as something out there in the world, systemic Injustice, oppression, you know, cruel, ruthless dictators and you know, famous murderers and adulterers. Everyone sort of gets sin out there. But if you have not yet confronted them with the sin in here, in them, in their own hearts, then you're not yet being honest with them and giving them a chance to be honest with themselves and their need for God. Because let me warn you, when you do that, that is offensive. When, you, when you're honest with people about their sin, especially in our world today, that is offensive. It might be the only thing that's offensive anymore. You can say any four-letter words you want. You can espouse any kooky, cockeyed belief you want. But whatever you do, don't you dare suggest that there might be something wrong with me. Right? That I am not perfectly perfect and acceptable and, and virtuous and sufficient enough exactly the way I am. Friends, the gospel is offensive because God has the audacity to say, actually, there is something very wrong with you, so wrong that I had to send my son to die for you because nothing less than the perfect blood of Jesus would appease my wrath, my holy, righteous wrath against your sin. And until you get honest about that, about your sin, until the people we're witnessing to can get honest with that about their sin and the depths of their depravity and your need for a savior until you can do it Jesus isn't for you Jesus is clear I came for sinners not saints the, the, the healthy don't need a doctor the sick need a doctor you got to get honest about your need church will we be so honest with unbelievers will we be honest yes gracious and respectful but honest about their bad theology. Again, Paul is essentially saying to them here, you've got a lot of really bad, wrong ideas about who God is. A.W. Tozer asserted that the most important thing about us is what comes into our minds when we think about God. How about the people in your life who are far from the Lord? Why? Why? What is it that they think about him that maybe keeps them at an arm's length? If they were honest, when they think about God, what do they think? Well, he created things, obviously. I mean, look around. But he doesn't appear to be all that involved anymore, all that interested anymore. Certainly not enough to be concerned about my little sins, my white lies, my petty insecurities, jealousies, my inconsequential go gossip and lust. Surely God's got bigger things on his hands to worry about than that. As long as I'm generally a good person, I'm sure God doesn't mind. Or they think, well, God is love. 
God is love, and loving means accepting. So the important thing is to see the goodness in everyone, to affirm and validate everyone, no matter what. That's what God does. He made us just the way we are, and so he must approve of us and, and accept us and, and affirm us just the way we are. Don't change a thing. Or they think, and if I'm really honest, I hate God. I hate God. If there's even a God at all, he's not a God. I have any interest in worshiping kind of God that would let my father walk out on us, let my mother die young of cancer, let my husband cheat on me, let my wife disappoint me, let my kids disobey me, let my friends reject and forget about me, leave me, let my boss screw me over, let me suffer. How dare he? I hate God. At least then you're getting honest, right? At least you're getting honesty. Brothers and sisters, will we be honest enough to even give the, the platform for those kinds of discussions, to, to even bring it up, to even ask probing questions and risk being offensive? Will we be, and, and when we get met with that kind of rejection maybe, hostility toward the God that we love, Will we be equally honest with them about the truth of who God is and about his love for them and their need for him? Will we be gentle and respectful but honest about it? And in, in order to do so, to be honest about who God is, number 11, we must be biblical. We must be biblical. Paul does not just share his own personal musings and speculations about God here. He consults the divine autobiography God's Word, the Bible. While Paul doesn't explicitly quote it, as we said, his sermon here is saturated with so much biblical revelation, exhortation, and most of all with biblical doctrine, specifically biblical theology, doctrine about God, who God is. After having been honest with them about all their wrong ideas of who God is, now Paul takes them to God's word in verses 24 through 31 to set the record straight on who God really is. Let me tell you who he is. Let me show you who he is. Warren Wearsby points out that Paul shares four basic truths about who God is here in verses 24 through 31. The greatness of God, he is creator. The goodness of God, he is provider. The government of God, he is ruler. And the grace of God, he is savior. But you know me, I'm afraid that Wearsby has actually left out five additional glorious attributes of God that I can see here in Paul's sermon. And so uh, while I couldn't unfortunately keep his G alliteration going, I switched to P's. But how about the presence of God as our helper the preservation of God as our sustainer, the paternity of God as our father, the propriety of God as our judge, and finally, the power and preeminence of God as victor and conqueror. So let's just back up now and consider each of those briefly, these glorious truths that Paul extols and shares about who God is, about who God is for you, who God is for you. Let's celebrate it and just how biblical each of them is. We'll back up and start with Wearsby's list and run through these biblically. Paul rejoices in the greatness of God as creator. Verse 24, 
said God made the world and everything in it. He's Lord of heaven and earth. Again, I told you that's Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Nehemiah 9-6, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them, and the whole host of heaven worships you. Revelation 4.11, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Then Paul rejoices in the goodness of God as provider. He says, verse 25, God gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. You think of David, Psalm 23, 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, my cup overflows. Psalm 34, 10, those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. James 1, 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father. Paul rejoices in the government of God as ruler. Verse 26, he says he made from one man every nation having determined the boundaries of their dwelling place. Psalm 103.19 says that the, Lord, the Lord's throne is in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Daniel 2.21, God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets them up. Second Chronicles 20 verse 6, you rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Paul rejoices in the grace of God as Savior. Verse 30 here, God invites us, commands us to repent and believe and be saved. Isaiah 45, I am the Lord, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Turn to me and be saved. Psalm 3, verse 8, salvation belongs to Yahweh. Acts 3, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And now, Let's shift to my appended list and the P's. Uh, Paul rejoices in the presence of God, who is our helper. Verse 27, he says he's not far from each one of us. Joshua 1.9 says the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Deuteronomy 31.6 promises he will not leave you or forsake you. Psalm 145.18, the Lord is near to all who call on him. Psalm 139, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? Even if I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Paul rejoices in the preservation of God as our sustainer. Verse 28, in him we live and move and have our being. Again, he, he quotes from a pagan philosopher, but it's a thoroughly biblical idea. Psalm 55, 22, God will sustain you. Psalm 54, 4, the Lord is the upholder of my life. Colossians 1, 17, in him all things hold together. Romans eleven thirty six. for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul rejoices in the paternity of God, who is our loving father. Verses uh, 28 and 29 here, we are indeed his offspring, he says. Deuteronomy 14 says, you're the children of the Lord your God, for the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his own treasured possession. Isaiah 63, 17, you, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer from of old. Galatians 4, 6, because you are my children, you are sons. God has sent the spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Paul rejoices in the propriety of God, his rightness or his justness uh, as our judge, verse 31, he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. He's going to set everything right. Psalm 7, verse 11, God is a righteous judge. James 4, 12, there's only one lawgiver and one judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. 2 Corinthians 5, 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one will receive what is due 
uh, for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And on that day, when God judges righteously, most importantly, number nine here, finally, Paul rejoices in God's power and preeminence as our conqueror. Jesus, our victor over sin and the penalty of sin and death. Verse 31, God raised Jesus from the dead to prove it. Uh, Romans 6, 9, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion on him. Ephesians 1, 20 uh, through 22, God raised Jesus from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. And not only that, here's the best part, 1 Corinthians six fourteen declares, God raised the Lord Jesus, and now he will also raise us up by his power. Church, this is your God. This is your God. The great creator, the good provider, the sovereign ruler, the gracious savior, the present comforter, the preserving sustainer, the loving father, the righteous judge, and the preeminent conqueror is your God. At least I hope he is. He can be. He can be your God this morning if he's not. And that brings us to principle number 12. In our evangelism, we must be exhorting. To exhort is to urge, to advise, or caution earnestly, to admonish urgently. That's how Paul ends his sermon in verse 31 with a warning. Verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent or else. Repent or else. Speaking of brutal honesty, by the way, Paul basically sums up all of their uh, polytheistic religion, all of their worship of the fake gods for centuries, all of their vain pagan philosophies, their proud five-century-long legacy of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, all the greats of antiquity, Greek philosophers. Paul summarizes it this way, times of ignorance. It's ignorant because, friends, you can have all the knowledge in the world. You can fill your head with all sorts of ideas about how things work. But if you don't know God as he truly is, as he has revealed himself to us, through his word, and through his son, Jesus. If you don't know him, Jesus, personally, as your Lord and Savior, you don't know Jack. You don't know any squat. You don't know anything worth knowing. And so Paul warns them here, your forefathers, yeah, the smartest ones, they were ignorant. But God overlooked that. Tony Marita explains, overlook doesn't imply that God ignored human rebellion. Rather, in God's great mercy, he didn't immediately visit humanity with the judgment we deserved. But with the coming of Jesus, a decisive turning point is now taking place in redemptive history. Redemptive history. Now everyone must repent or face God's just judgment. And so Paul exhorts them. And so I'm just going to exhort you this morning to repent and trust in Jesus today. If you haven't yet done that, for the forgiveness of your sins, repent. Give your life to Jesus before it's too late. And for those of us who have, I exhort you now 
to go out as we leave in a few minutes and exhort others with urgency to repent and trust in Jesus for their salvation before it's too late. As Hebrews 2.3 puts it, how shall we escape God's holy wrath if we neglect such a great salvation? If they neglect Jesus and what he's done for them, there is no neutrality with Jesus. Right? To be apathetic about Jesus is to be apathetic about salvation. It's to be apathetic about your sin and its consequences, to be apathetic about eternal life. And brothers and sisters, we need to implore people then to repent and trust in Jesus. As Spurgeon said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with their arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them not to go. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let no one go there unwarned or unprayed for. We need to warn people and exhort them to trust in Jesus. And number 13, we must be Christ-centered. Paul's entire sermon has been culminating to this point in verse 31, and so this is probably a good time to pause and let you know that most scholars believe that what we read here is not actually an exact transcript of Paul's entire message. It's probably just an outline. And I, for one, certainly think so because otherwise Paul would have been guilty of not sharing the gospel. Because look, here's the thing. It's important to let people know about God and creation and his sovereignty, his provision, his presence, all of that is wonderful, but listen, if there's no cross, then there's no gospel, and therefore there's no hope. Romans 1.16 declares the gospel, good news, is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. Only the gospel has the power to save us. And the gospel is the good news about Christ's life, death, and resurrection to pay for our sins, to purchase new life for us. And so I have to believe here that when Paul mentions the man whom God has appointed and given assurance to all by raising him from the dead, that that must just be Luke's sort of cliff notes, recollections, high-level outline of Paul's sermon because Paul must have given them more context for understanding who this appointed man Jesus is and why he had to be raised from the dead in the first place his crucifixion, his death in the place of them as sinners. And that's most important, what Jesus means for them. Why Jesus' death and resurrection should matter eternally for them and for us today. Brothers and sisters, we too, like Christ, like Paul, must remain Christ-centered in our conversations with unbelievers. Listen, you can be as charming as whimsical, as caring, as eager, as empathetic as you want. But if you haven't given them Jesus, you have not given them any hope for eternal life. What the unbelievers in your life and my life need more than our care and our support and our empathy and prayers and friendship is your Jesus. That's what they need. That's who they need. They need Jesus, and you know him, and they don't. Not personally. Will we give him to them? That's the question for us this morning. And when we do, number 14, will we be trusting? 
will we be trusting? Verses 32 and 33, we read, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. Then verse 34, But some men joined him and believed. So here's the deal. Like Paul's crowd, every one of us here this morning will respond to Jesus in one of three ways. Rejection, reflection, or reception. That's it. So the three ways you can respond to Jesus this morning. Rejection, resurrection of the dead. Reflection, hmm, this is interesting what you Christians believe. I'd like to hear more about that. Or reception, reception. God, have mercy on me, a sinner, in Jesus' name. How will you respond to Jesus this morning? That's the most important question in your life right now and ever. It's how you respond to Jesus. And for those of us who have received him, the next question is, how will we respond to the gospel? Will we go and tell others? And then the third question is, how are we going to respond when we tell others and we share Jesus with them only to have some of them reject him? Or, or maybe just reflect on him. I'll mull it over and get back to you. Like Paul, will we trust in God's providence, in God's ability to take that seed of the gospel that we have now been faithful to sow, no matter how imperfectly, none of us is a perfect evangelist, Paul wasn't, but that God can take that mustard seed of faith and grow it in his own way, in his own time into full blossoming, saving faith in their life. We trust him to do that. You know, some commentators have suggested that Paul's attempt at evangelism here on the Areopagus was a failure because apparently there were so few converts. But I'm here to tell you, let me just remind you and relieve you of that burden If any of you here this morning are putting that on your own shoulders, you are not, we are not in the conversion business. That is way out of your pay grade. Okay, our job, our calling is simply to tell them and then trust him. Tell them, trust him. That's it. Pray and pray. Number 15, we need to be personal. I just love that Luke ends with the narrative section here by including the personal names of Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris. We know nothing else about these two in the rest of the New Testament. But listen, God knows. God knows them. That's the important thing. They're written in his book of life. Because, friends, salvation is personal. Is your name written in his book of life? Salvation is is personal. I hope, I pray that when you get to heaven and God asks you, why should I let you in, that you have a much better answer than I was raised in a Christian home. If that's your answer on that day, judgment day, you are in trouble, friend. Salvation is personal. If you say, actually, God, if you could just slide, I can actually see my mom and dad right in there, my family, hey, God's going to say, yeah, yeah, I know why they're here. I know them. I'm asking, why are you here? Why should I let you in? 
Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? That's, that's game, set, and match. That's everything. Do you know him personally as your Lord and Savior? And if you do, is your evangelism to others personal too? It doesn't mean that we have to have a close personal friendship with everyone that we share the gospel with. Every single one of these Athenians was a total stranger to Paul. But what it does mean is that we don't treat people just like a means to an end, right? Like a possible feather in our evangelistic cap. Like I shared the gospel again today, pat myself on the back, check that box, another jewel in the crown. Oh, no, this, is, this is eternity. These are people's lives at stake. We, we need to see people the way that Jesus sees them. Not just as like, you know, friendly, you know, co-workers that I have fun with, neighbors I enjoy hanging out. We need to see people the way he sees them. It's, it's light or dark, you know, death or life. They're saved or they're not. That's it. And our hearts should break for them personally the same way that God's does. Do we view them as God's offspring? Verse 29 as his personal, prodigal children who he desperately longs to bring back home. I hope that if, you know, my, my son, daughter, ran away from home and was just, you know, again, hanging out, friendly, co-worker, dinner party, whatever, telling, telling the story, yeah, no, yeah. my parents, I don't know, kind of ap- apathetic. I hope that somebody would say, I'm sure they miss you. They love you. They want a relationship with you. Be reconciled to them. Will we be those kinds of witnesses to our lost loved ones? Lastly, end with this. I warned you last week I would end the same way again this morning as we did last week. Bonus principle for effective evangelism. It's the context for the whole thing. We must be enamored. We have to be enamored. Uh, without, Without being in love with Jesus, we won't do any of this. The whole reason Paul shares any of this, does any of this, the whole reason we should do it and will do it is because we love Jesus. You know, duty is a, is a harsh taskmaster. We need to share out of the overflowing love that we have for the Lord, that that love would overflow to others. So I just end with this story to, to illustrate it this way. It's one of my favorite illustrations uh, for evangelism. I've shared it before, but it's so good. The story of Shane Claiborne that he tells about working for a year with Mother Teresa in an orphanage in Calcutta, India, and one of his favorite little boys in the orphanage was having a birthday, eight or nine years old, and Shane asked him what he wanted for his birthday, and he said, I'd like to try ice cream. I've heard about it. I've never tried ice cream. He says, oh, you got to try ice cream. So he runs out, closest ice cream shop, gets a big double, triple scoop, you know, hurries back to the orphanage before it melts and gives it to the boy. And he watches as he takes that first lick and his eyes just light up in the way that only ice cream can do. Right? And then, but, but here's the thing. What's the very next thing that the boy does? He turns and he calls all his friends over and he says, line up, line up, line up. And he walks through the line and he gives every single one of them a lick. Because what do you do when you taste the best thing you've ever experienced in your whole life? You want to share it with those you love. Friends, that's, that's the question before us this morning. Are we so in love, so enamored 
so smitten with, with Jesus that we just can't help but let that love overflow into those around us. Line up, everybody gets a lick of Jesus. Will we give them a lick this week?